Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and sperm whales everywhere wishing for a name change. <laughs> it's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means? It's Tea with BBP. Live from the Michigan State University campus, it's your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBP, international superstar and diva of SLA. And speaking of whales, with me are my co-hosts who know how to swim with the changing tides of language teaching, Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Hey, Angelica, how you doing? I am doing fantastic. You I, are you, on fire today. Well, that's because of those pearls you're wearing. You oh, look like that guy who was on Bill Maher oh the night. Milo Yiannopoulos with that know. guy. Look at those pearls. The Queen of England right now is fainting at looking at those pearls. <laughs> well, I am wearing all of her hats. So. I guess really something. And Walter, how are you doing? I am fine. <laughs> oh, you're trying to do what? <laughs> we are looking for Nemo. Wow. Oh, That's wait, a sorry. terrible impersonation oh, come on of now. Dory doing it's like. Let's hear it. That's how you do it. You go. That's how you do it. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's going on today. This is going to be an interesting show, I think. Uh, she's she's trying to imitate Dory well, and I, Finding yeah, Nemo. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, but, I, yeah, I know that, but I'm, uh, I'm talking about the two of you. Oh, wow. That's insanity. Well, ask me where I was this weekend for where? my birthday, by the way. <gasps> Happy was, birthday Yeah, yeah, yeah. But ask me where I was. Ask me where I went. Remember where I, Do you remember where I went? Was Alabama. this Alabama? I went to Alabama. I had a great time. I was at the University of Alabama, so I have to give a big shout out to the people in Alabama. Um, Stacy, Stacy Jacobson, who was the chair of the conference. This was their annual University of Alabama Alabama Languages Conference. She did a great job organizing and everything, and ran the show great. Uh, I had the best time with people there, and uh, had a good a good uh, keynote and good interaction with everybody. I want to thank. I have to give a shout also to Justin and Bowden, Bowden, who actually drove me back to the airport because you've got to go an hour to Birmingham um, from Tuscaloosa to get to the airport, and so they drove me. We had a good time, got some coffee and chit chatted and so on. So it was there was really really good group of people. They really treat you well there. So thank you, Alabama. Thanks so much. I'll come back sometime. Sweet home. Alabama. What did you all do while I was away this weekend? While the cat's away, the mice play, right? So what? What? I missed you every second. You did. Mm-hmm. We were crying. Yep. You were we crying? were like yeah. bawling up in corners. We were all together for your birthday, bears. thinking you were coming, and then yeah. you didn't show up. Yep. Right, well, then. nobody told me. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so here I turn another year older. God, I just don't want to talk about it. I made this joke that didn't go over very well at the at Alabama about. I'm getting so old now that if you want to ask me my age, I'm not going to tell you. You have to just cut me open and count the rings. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like I just I don't I don't want to tell anybody my age anymore. You guys, I'm old. I'm like no, you're not. I am old. as old as you feel. I am. I feel really old. Oh come old. on. Because as Walter would imitate me, I'm so tired. Or how would Dora say that? I'm so tired. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So next up, so my diva tour is going well. The next stop is next week. Guess where I am? In Chicago. No, no, oh, no. Oh, no, that's the week after. I oh, don't know where S-W are you Colt. I'm at SW Colt, Southwest Squilt. Colt. I'm at Southwest Squilt. Colt. I'm going to go to Oklahoma City. So um, that's the first weekend next March. For those of you out there in Oklahoma City, if you're listening right now, you're going to listen this weekend, I'll be seeing you this, this next Friday and Saturday. So I'm looking forward to that. So that'll be fun. All right. Um, I want to remind everybody, during the month of February, we have a special contest. Angelica, what's the contest about? Your 
well, a birthday greeting. Yeah, not for me. Not for you. Yeah, a yes. general A general birthday. birthday. Yeah, so we have our greeting card contest. It is over this week. So you have to get your, you have like, no, next week it's over, right? Next Tuesday. When's the 28th? Anybody tell me? I don't know my dates. Tuesday. Tuesday's the 28th. Yeah. Tuesday's the yeah. 28th. So Tuesday's the last day to get your birthday uh, greeting card into the contest. Uh, Luke has posted the rules on our website. So go to teawithbbp.com and you can find out how to enter that contest. Remember, we have two categories. You can enter both. Um, if you'd like, um, but you can only win in one category. And a serious card and a funny card. And so we're looking forward to getting those. We've got a few in already. And so we want to see your L2-related birthday greetings to people. This will be fun. It'll be fun because no, mm-hmm. the people can share them and use them. Yep. That'd be great. You know, we might have a whole little industry going here, you know, among our teachers and listeners about birthday greeting cards. You, some people might have a future at Hallmark. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Or American Greetings. Does You know what's funny is I go to the greeting card section of the store now, and it seems to me like there are fewer greeting cards than there were before. Because I think everybody's hmm. sending online things or they send birthday wishes on Facebook. They do all that kind of stuff, right? Is, is, am I right? Or I don't right? know. I, mean, I, I still, still see send, a lot of them. But. Well, I don't send them, but I give, I right. give them. Yeah, that's yeah. true. They're Ian. getting to be more expensive, too. Hmm. Buy a birthday card and you're forking out seven bucks or something. Well, that's because there's fewer of them. I think that they're having to make – they can't make up in volume anymore So because everybody's doing it electronically or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, um, just a reminder that during the show, there's the SLA challenge question. I will give you the question in a few minutes. And the first person to make it to the phones with the answer wins a prize. And, of course, what kind of other question do we have, Walter? The diva. Challenge, challenge question. question. The Diva Challenge question. I'll read that question at some point, and you'll have time to call in with the right answer and win a prize. And we have Angelica's Quote of the Week and Walter's Read of the Week at some point during the show. We also have a special guest again today. Guess, isn't that fun? Fun. We're going to be talking to that person in a little while. If you want to call in and talk to us, the number is 517-884-4321. Again, 517-884-4321. Jen is on the lines waiting for you to call. And, of course, Angelica will be looking at Mixler to see what issues come up. But we really need you to call in. Um, so please do that. We don't want to be here alone in our, uh, in our little studio by ourselves. So don't be shy. Pick up the phone. The least you could do is call me and wish me a happy bladed birthday, everybody out there listening. Come on, mm, please. True. Don't send a tweet or Mixlerize it. Actually call in and say hi. Okay, again, the number is 517 517- Eight eight four four three two one. All right. Oh, I just got some important news. Guess what? What's that? We have now passed officially one hundred thousand plays. Wow. Of our show. That means we have a lot of people out there listening um, and uh, tuning into the t- uh, you know either live or um, after the fact. So that's pretty exciting. It yeah. is. Well, that or we have a, lo- a small number of people that are listening many, 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 many times. It could be that, too. <laughs> and you know what else today is? What? Today is our Golden Jubilee celebration. Oh, it's our 50th yeah. episode. Woo-hoo. 50th episode. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So That's crazy. That is crazy. I can't believe we've done 50 episodes. Right? We have. So and can, we're all still can alive. we hear Angelica do her whale voice since mm-hmm. you know, now we no. know that we're celebrating our 50th episode nope. and we're Not supposedly happening. whales? Nope. Well, let me get into the topic and then uh, we'll, we'll get Angelica to do the whale voice later. Maybe I should have worn my whale shirt. You could have worn your whale shirt. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Our focus this week, last week we talked about universal grammar. So our focus this week are alternatives to universal grammar. Um, and so I'm going to do a little brief discussion of this here. Not too long because it's not an area I, I actually work in. And we do have a special guest that's going to talk to us about this in a minute. Uh, but one of the major alternatives to universal grammar in both um, – not so much in linguistics, but actually in language acquisition, is what we call usage-based approaches. And notice that there's plural there because there's, there's although there's a group of people who consider themselves to be usage-based, there are a couple of ways to actually do usage-based approaches. But, but exactly what are usage-based approaches? Well, as I understand it, these approaches, um, unlike UG, which is concerned with underlying representation and some kind of unconscious knowledge source, um, usage-based approaches are more about what actually shows up in people's, people's performance. So in other words, usage-based approaches look at what people do and then try to make inferences about um, what is guiding what people do, whereas UG is about what's inside people's heads in terms of representation and look less about what people actually do. Um, so in, in this way, usage-based approaches try to explain what peop why people do what they do with language. Okay, and see, see how far that gets them in explaining what language is as well. Uh, now, usage-based approaches are derived from psychological constructs, not linguistic constructs. Okay, so UG is clearly rooted in linguistic history, whereas usage-based usage approaches are derived um, or related more to psychological constructs. Um, and they focus on such things as, for example, frequency. Um, to what extent frequency in the import or statistical stuff of learning is uh, a factor and what people do and what people know about language. Um, they also focus on such things as blocking and previous experience. So to what extent is your previous experience doing something, having an impact on what you're trying to do now? Um, and of course, they also are interested in such things as general cognitive architecture um, that underlies human learning um, and that either, either constrains human learning or pushes human learning in certain directions. So that, those in, that in a nutshell makes it different from UG. Now, interestingly, um, as my reading, the most recent reading of usage-based approaches I've done, is that they are now falling on the side, if, if they haven't consistently in the past, on the side that most of language learning is implicit in nature. Um, so that is something they share with, with, uh, with UG in a certain sense. Um, explicit learning under a usage-based approach plays a very tangential and at best supplementary role. Again, at best supplementary role, but not a central role. So implicit learning is central to a usage-based approach and explicit learning is tangential or supplementary. Um, so interestingly, while usage-based approaches don't believe in something like universal grammar, they do put input as a central construct in language acquisition. So those teachers out there wondering how this might impact how they're thinking about um, language teaching, um, input is still going to be central, so we're not going to take that away. Um, they also, usage-based approaches also place uh, internal mechanisms in a central position. Um, but the internal mechanisms they focus on are different from what, for example, UG people focus on. And we might hear a little about that in a minute from our guest. So um, the difference then fundamentally between usage-based and UG is, is that the internal mechanisms for usage-based people are not language-specific or special to language. They're part of general learning architecture in the mind-brain. So if you want to get in this conversation, um, the number to reach us at is 517 884 Four three two one. Again, that is five one seven eight eight four four three 
And I think we have our guest on the phone already, our guest. Steffi, are you on the line? I am. Yay! Our guest for our audience out there listening is Steffi Wolf, who uh, is a professor at the University of Florida at Gainesville. And uh, Steffi Wolf is a person who's... uh, increasingly well-known in the area of usage-based approaches and, and, and related phenomena in language acquisition. So, Steffi, thank you for joining our show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Now, I know that you know I talked to Jason last week, and you also, you like me, you know Jason. Um, and yeah. so I'm going to ask you the same questions we asked of Jason last week because I think that way listeners out there can compare last week's show to this week's show. Um, and mm-hmm. the first question is about fundamental misconceptions. In your mind, what do people out there who hear about usage-based approaches, what is the most common or fundamental misconception they have about these approaches? Well, I think you already pointed to to one uh, for sure when you said that uh, maybe the biggest difference between a usage-based approach and a UG-based approach is that in UG, we assume that there are certain cognitive mechanisms that are very specifically tailored to language acquisition, mm-hmm. whereas in a, a usage-based approach, Uh, We try to push the envelope as far as we can to say what are the general, not domain-specific cognitive mechanisms that are employed also in language learning, but that are not necessarily exclusive to language learning. So so there's something internal, yeah. Yeah, it is something internal. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions that frequently arise uh, from from this is that people who hear about usage-based approaches um, and the central role that input plays in these usage-based approaches is that they get this understanding that usage-based theorists claim that you just are uh, exposed to input and without much doing, uh, the input sort of trickles into your brain and makes language acquisition happen. Um, and that is clearly not what a usage-based approach uh, would, would claim. Um, in fact, there are lots of, of cognitive mechanisms that, that need to be in place. And in fact, many of these are probably innate. They are part of our genetic makeup, of our cognitive blueprint, and they enable us to learn all kinds of things, including language. So really, what, what usage-based approaches um, are trying to argue is that not that cognition doesn't play a role and that it all somehow comes from the input, but what usage-based uh, approaches claim is that the mechanisms that are used um, are not necessarily very specific to language. Right, I gotcha. So, in other words, so so there's something special about language in that it's that only mm-hmm. humans have it, but it's due to the special nature of human cognition as opposed to animal cognition. Is that a fair way to sort of rephrase what you said? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, so there's something innate about about human learning that's different from animal learning that allows humans to develop and, and use language that, that animals, that that's not UG-related. Um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I also think, if I can add on to what you say, um, mm-hmm. I mentioned frequency at the output because it is an yeah. important construct. In, but, it, but I think that a lot of people out there try to reduce usage-based approaches to just frequency. Everything, anything that's frequent, you're going to get easy and so on. But, but it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. That was going to be my second uh, contendent for, uh, you know, for something to say about misconceptions because people hear frequency effect and they think that what we mean by that is something like, oh, things that are frequent in the input, those are the things that should be easy to learn. And the more frequent they are, the more easy it is for these things to become cognitively entrenched, and therefore they're also learned faster and, you know, things like that. Where when you really look at how frequency plays out in input data, um, you have to realize that what defines a frequency effect is um, not necessarily just an absolute count of occurrence, but frequency effects can obtain all kinds of shapes. So it can be relevant how frequent something is for learning, but it need not always be. Uh, to give you an example of where that rationale fails um, is uh, prepositions in English. So if it were in fact true that um, the more frequent things in the language are the ones that we learn easiest, then uh, we should all be really good second language learners of prepositions. But as a matter of fact, the opposite is true. Prepositions are one of the right. most notoriously difficult areas for any learner of English, uh, in spite of them being so frequent. Right. So clearly, that's not the only explanation that one should try to look for. And um, yeah, raw frequencies or absolute frequencies don't always give you the best uh, explanation. Sometimes it might matter more how they are dispersed, for instance, uh, across all their occurrences. Do you get them in clusters? Do you get them evenly distributed in a text or a string of speech? Um, how salient are they? So just completely independent from how frequent something is, how easy is it to really hear something in a, you know, an actual stream of speech? Um, how many form function mappings are there? So if, if you take a preposition like, I don't know, two, um, how many different, if only related, but how many different meanings are there really? So there's one form, but there are all kinds of different right. meanings attached to it. So the frequencies of every one of these different instantiations plays out in a different way. And so things, yeah, get yeah. very complicated very fast. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I like to remind people that we like to reduce language acquisition to simple things sometimes, but it's always much, much more complex than what meets mm -hmm. the eye, and we just have to remind ourselves of that. Um, what's, the, what's the takeaway for teachers then, do you think, Steffi, in this, it, it, from a usage-based approach? Is there something that teachers can think about that this approach might offer them or uh, make suggestions for in terms of language teaching? I definitely think so. Um, there is a whole stream of research that um, is labeled data-driven. Um, so data-driven learning and data-driven teaching um, in many ways rests on some of the most foundational assumptions that usage-based theory makes and tries to combine that with methods such as corpus linguistics, where you look at you know, many examples from authentic discourse that um, has been digitally compiled so that you can run queries like, like Google, basically, <laughs> um, and um, help you with understanding uh, specific aspects of language um, in a way that then is maybe more beneficial to the learner than a more explicit approach, a more rule-governed approach where um, you might get a rule and you might get one or two examples, but instead in a data-driven 
approach, you would try to give the learner access to many, many examples of the phenomenon in question so that they can inductively um, figure out what actually works and why and how. Right, right. Yeah, so that kind of stuff can help teachers figure out um, maybe in a certain sense, one way to, well, I don't want to say it quite this way, but there's ideas of privileging things in the input and then sort of tweaking input in a certain way mm-hmm. um, and highlighting things and so on so that so that um, you might assist the learner in getting something sooner rather than later or something like that or something that's more difficult might come in soon. You know, I think that's, is, is that kind of what you're trying to say maybe? Yeah, that could be one application. There are so many different ways to do data-driven learning and teaching. It can go the, you know, from uh, you doing the data-driven uh, materials development to say, I'm looking at a corpus as the teacher, and I'm going to pick the examples that really bring out um, how this phenomenon is is best described and best exemplified, and I'm going to prepare it so that I can you know, uh, direct my learner's attention specifically to to the things that I want them to notice. Um, the uh, extreme other end of data-driven learning would be to sort of take a step back as the teacher and instead let the learners be in the driver's seat, give them access to the data, give them some training on how to uh, run queries and how to look at many, many examples at one time in a meaningful way. Uh, and then let them, uh, you know, run with it and um, ask them questions maybe that will guide them in the way they're going to look at this data, but ultimately let them figure out what the patterns are, what the rules are, what the exceptions are, um, uh, because the understanding is that when learners learn on their own initiative at their own pace, um, they feel very empowered. It uh, gives them a sense of confidence. And it is more learning on demand. So um, right, right. it, you know, is, is more of an approach that hopefully catches them um, asking a question themselves that then hopefully is answered on the spot. Right. Got it. Got it. Oh, well, you know, I, I think that's going to give our, our listeners some things to think about. Maybe hopefully some people will call in and follow up on that afterwards. But um, so I, I just want to let you go now, Steffi, because I know I've had you on the phone for a few minutes and you've got things to do. So I want to thank you for making yourself available and talking to us today. Um, it's great when we people like you make yourselves available and reach out to, to our listening audience. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Bill. It's been my pleasure. Oh, well, great. And, and we'll be in touch, okay? So thanks a lot, Steffi. We're gonna send. We're gonna send. We're gonna send you a little present in the mail. Okay. All right. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks, bye, Steffi. Steffi. Bye now. I I've uh, worked with Steffi a little bit. She actually was a co-author in a chapter for a, a book that I edited on theories in SLA, and she co-authored the chapter hmm. on usage-based approaches. So that's how I know of her, and I know she'd be a good person to talk to her audience. Great. Um, I've got some follow-up comments, and I've got some Twitter things to read. But I'm gonna give the SLA challenge question before we get any further along, and slips from my grasp. Okay, since we're talking about alternatives to universal grammar, um, here's the SLA challenge question. Another alternative to universal grammar is what we call functional approaches to language and language acquisition. The question is this, what do functional approaches attempt to link language to? A, human cognition, or B, human communication? Again, what do functional approaches attempt to link language to? A, human cognition, or B, human communication? So first person to call in with an answer to that will win a prize from us. All right. Um, 
Okay, so I really like what Steffi had to say, um, and she's very articulate, very clear on some of the things. Um, and I like that idea that that what they're what what happens with theories is the following, uh, um, and and UG people are running their theory as far as it will take them. And as Steffi said, usage-based people are running their theory as far as it will take them. And what's eventually going to happen is, because I'm already there, is that these theories are going to realize that they need each other for a variety of reasons. Because um, I think that there are parts of the theories that the people aren't talking to each other about. Um, and, and I think that's going to happen sooner than later. I think that people like Steffi are great to talk to because she's well-versed in both. Um, Jason is as well and some other people. And so I think we're going to start to see more dialogue among these different theories. Um, for teachers, um, the implications may or may not be readily apparent or readily available in the near future. Um, but, um, you know, that I think is down the road. But, but it is true, at least for the time being, that – no matter what perspective you take on the nature of language, whether it's special or not, is that ultimately our learners are going to need access to copious amounts of input in order to develop language in their heads. And so um, that is one thing to walk away with last week and this week, as, as you know, as we've said repeatedly on the show. Um, now there's some more theory um, that helps you understand why input is so important. Either it's because there's something innate that needs the input data that's language-specific or there's something innate to human cognition that needs a language data so it can build its system. So one way or another, the input data are critical um, to language acquisition. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, all right. Now, um, following up from last week, there was a couple of things that came in on um, Twitter related to UG, and I want to just address a couple of them. Um, so Melanie was talking about – she was answering a question about how does your understanding of UG inform your teaching – and um, she just said, it tells me to continue giving CI, comprehensible input, so that students' brains can formulate hypotheses to try. Um, yes. And again, these are not conscious hypotheses. Again, these are unconscious hypotheses. So we want to make sure we're clear about that. What was Russ wrote in, and I thought this is a good thing to clarify. Russ wrote in and said, I was surprised to hear you talk about a principle and parameters model of UG. Chomsky doesn't promote that anymore, does he? Does anyone? Uh, I'm, still, I'm still confused about this, and he actually sent in a long thing, a uh, blurb about parametric variation has been under attack and so on and so forth. The answer is yes and no. It has been. There are still parameters inside linguistic theory. They're just not the parameters of the old PNP. So nobody talks about PNP, but under current PNP, which is principles and parameters, but under current, under current um, generative linguistics, there are still principles and there are still parameters. They just don't form the basis of the theory as they did under PMP um, because UG has been reduced uh, under minimalism. So um, so principles, for example, are, are micro-oriented now toward features. For ex- I'm not principles, parameters are. Um, and then the principles have been reduced to, to, to uh, a fewer number of those things. And so, um, so they're still around and if you, if you read any linguistic theory today, um, people are still talking about principles and they're still talking about parameters, but it's no longer couched within the old model of principles and parameters. It's couched in the new model of minimalism. So I know, Russ, it is confusing. It is. Um, but um, uh, that's the state of affairs. So there you go. All right. Um, let's see. I've 
got nothing else uh, on my agenda to talk about right now. So should we go to Walter's? Walter, do you have a read of the week that you'd like to share with people I've before got a we read of the week. before we take questions from people? Sure, we can talk about a read of the week. This week, the article is from Trends in Cognitive Science, written by Charles Yang from Yale University. Yay, Charles. And it was published Yang in from Yale. I like that. That's, I like those alliterations. <laughs> Yang from Yale. That's good alliteration. Yang from Yale. Uh, it was published in 2004. It's called Universal Grammar, Statistics or Both. And it takes a look. Uh, well, I'll read just a part of the abstract here. The article addresses issues uh, of, well, I'll just start from the beginning. Re- uh, recent demonstrations of statistical learning in infants have reinvigorated the innateness versus learning debate in language acquisition. This article addresses these issues from both computational and developmental perspectives. So you can take a look at it and get Charles Yang's perspective on universal grammar, statistics, or both. Again, trends in cognitive science from October of 2004. There's your read of the week. Yeah, and Charles actually in child language acquisition has been doing interesting work and talking about uh, he's a UG person, but at the same time looking at non-linguistic, non-UG aspects of acquisition. Just what I was talking about before, how how you might need to combine different approaches to get the totality and understand exactly how language acquisition happens. Um, and for readers, I listeners for readers, for listeners out there, actually, if you want me to, I'll talk about it later. You have to let me know. But I just wrote a chapter for a book that does exactly that. I, I, I tease apart something in Spanish and show how you need both UG and something like a usage-based or a non-UG approach to understand how this thing is acquired over time. So if people ask me about that, I will talk about it. Not at length, but talk about it because I want to – I always like to put my money where my mouth is or put my mouth where my money is. One of the two. I don't know. <laughs> put my mouth somewhere. So, you know, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. All right. Um, well, thank you, Walter. Do we have any um, questions, email questions or mixed questions coming up yet? Are people's heads spinning from all this theory? Actually, we have people requesting that you repeat the – SLA challenge question. I can do that. All right, because we're talking about alternatives to UG. um, And one of the alternatives is called functional approaches to language and language acquisition. So the question is this. What do functional approaches attempt to link language to? So they try to link language to something, right? So what do they try to link language to? Uh, A, human cognition, or B, human communication? Um, So that is the question. What are they linking language to? Okay. Um, so where are we? Where's, where's, where's our questions? What's going on? Well, I have Give some questions some. in email land. All right. Um, none of them are particularly related to the topic of the day, but well, I can okay. still ask them if you'd like. That's okay. All right. Well, let me ask you this question. This is a question coming from Ryan, and he talks about weather in Toronto – so I assume he's maybe from Toronto, but um, and because he, he wants to challenge you to not talk about the weather on in, in an entire show. So I guess today that <laughs> already kind of defeated that. But we hadn't up to this point, right? So um, he says an entire show not talking about the weather, please. That's just challenge to you. But anyway, he wants to know your thoughts on the slow on slow language podcasts and whether they're an effective way to get input. <laughs> 
or if one should be listening to only the language being spoken at a natural pace. Slow language podcast. I have no idea what that is, but I'm going to assume that you take you take language in which you you take a podcast, you take a recording, and you basically just stretch it out so you slow it down. Correct. Now, in the research on natural language learning, it's not slowing down necessarily um, that has shown to be the most effective thing for language learners. You know what it is? What? Pausing. Hmm. It's pausing at right junctures. This is like, for example, when I talk, I have an independent study with with two students, and I pause a lot with them because, um, you know, and, and, and I pause at key places um, because I know that there's a point, if they get something that they're not sure of, there's got to be some processing time to build in to see what it is before you go on. So it's not so much slowing down, it's pausing and giving processing time in the right places. And so you kind of have to like, I call it bracketing your input. You bracket your input around particular phrases. So for example, if you take the sentence um, that I just read about the, the SLA challenge question, what do functional approaches attempt to link language to? Rather than say, what do functional approaches attempt to link language to? Okay, spit to? it out. Come on now. Okay. <laughs> The, the, what, the, the, the way I would do this is, what do functional approaches attempt to link language to? Mm-hmm. See the pausing in there? Just that pausing, it's, a, it's amazing how much that gives language learners. And the pausing can be shorter or longer depending on, you know, but it's that kind of pausing that in the past we've seen to be an important factor in language acquisition for second language learners anyway. So, um, so there, that's what I think about slowing down. All right. There you have it, Ryan. I and, hope and, that was and there's a not a lot response. and there's just to be sure there's not a lot of research on that. There's a little bit of research on that, but a little bit is is interesting. Um, and, and I think hinting at stuff. So if anybody wants to do research on that, that's 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 a topic. That's a good MA thesis or a good PhD thesis to look at if you want to. Okay, any other questions we got coming up? Anything from Angelica? No. I don't know what's up with people. What is this? That's all right. It's too. It's just too much theory. So, Walter, give us an, <laughs> give us another email question. All right, I have another email question. Again, nothing to do with yeah. the topic. Well, that's okay. uh, but this is from Senor Wences. Maybe I'll relate it to the topic. I don't know what that what that's all about. But uh, and from Tacoma, Washington. So, uh, and he says, when a student is being qualified for special education services, how do you know when their disability is not due to language? What research is there proving second language learners qualify for special education? It says over 26% of my students are ELLs who are in special education. Three grade levels have 46% of the ELL population in special ed. So what's going on with special ed and language learning, I guess, is really what Well, you could give me advance warning for a question like that because <laughs> that, is like, that is like, I can't answer that question. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly. Um, Senor Wences, we're going to have to ponder this one. Because I'm not even sure what the question is, actually. I'm not sure what – it's not a comment It's not a comment on Senor Wences because I'm sure uh, – there's a question in there. I'm just not sure what, what I'm hearing. So. Well, I think the primary – he says, what research is there proving second language learners qualify for special education? I don't understand that second language learners qualify for special education. They don't. That's okay, okay, I think I know and understand. Let me, let, me, let me do an anecdote here. Um, a family member I have whose first language was Spanish. 
okay, because I grew up with two languages. And this particular family member's first language was Spanish, growing up with my grandparents. Got to school, and English was limited. And this was before the days of bilingual ed and so on. And so they did not know what to do with this family member. So they put her in special ed in the afternoon with, with special ed students. That caused irrevocable issues with self-esteem, um, uh, other kinds of psychological development, so on, because that person was being told that there was something wrong with her um, cognitively, emotionally, psychologically, when there was not. So I don't, I, I don't want to make any blanket statements, but second language learners um, are not special ed students unless in their first language they are special ed students. That's the only time. So if they're mm -hmm. in their first language, they're special ed students, then they're more likely going to be special ed students and in any language because they're just special ed to begin with. But sec having a, 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 being a second language speaker and is done not, does not qualify and should not qualify for special ed. That's the wrong approach to take if I understand the question now. And that's actually a true story from a family member. It was, I, I firsthand experienced it growing up. So it wasn't me, but I saw it. So. Well, Senor Wences, Sal Wright, if you have further questions or would like further clarification, send us another email and we'll... Yeah, we'll see if we can figure that one out. Okay. we got a call on the line here. It looks like we've got Stephen on the phone. Steve, are you, Stephen, are you there? I'm here. Okay. Now, is this, if I recall correctly, did you call him before, Stephen? I did. I called last week. Oh, okay. Stephen. Okay. I thought so because I know you're Stephen and not Steve. Okay. That's why I wanted to clarify. Okay. And uh, what are you calling about, Stephen? Uh, I'd like to take a stab at the SLA question. Oh, you would, would you? Yeah, I would love it. <laughs> You've yeah. fallen into my web of SLA challenge. All right. Okay, let me repeat the question, and then okay. uh, you can give me your answer. Uh, what do functional approaches attempt to link language to? Is it A, human cognition, or B, human communication? And your answer, Stephen Esteban, is? Human cognition. Human cognition. This is a trick question, so I'm going to give it to Stephen. Ooh. It's, I'm going to, we're going to send you the prize. It's actually no. Oh, good. It's, it's <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because it's confusing because it's, it's human communication, actually. Functional approaches try to link how language operates with the, its communicative intent or what right. we call a form meaning mapping or connection. And but because communication is tied to human cognition, <laughs> there is right. it's a, it's a gray area there. And so I kind of threw this question there to see how people would respond to it. But but technically, functional approaches when when they talk about it, or the, when scholars in this area talk about it, they go, we are looking at um, how it is that a form in language exists in terms of its communicative purpose, and they believe that language arises through and because of communication. So, but again, uh, communication is tied to human cognition. So, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna penalize you, Stephen, for <laughs> for the confused question there. So, okay, all right, um, um, go ahead. Uh, I, I had a comment. I, I was listening about the ELL learners with special ed. I'm actually um, heading to my grad class that talks just about that. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, what you said is basically what we've been looking at in the research and everything is that. Wrongly, you know, wrongly putting ELL students into special ed, it demoralizes them, and then they're not getting—they're getting the different help than they actually need. So it's not—it's 
it's just not very helpful. It's it's not. It's it's, it's not. No. They 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 are they are um, how how do I say it? They are in, input deficient. They are not. Cognitively, cognitively impaired or emotionally impaired. So, and there's a big difference between the two. So, yeah. So, well, good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about that in your class, and maybe we can reach out to uh, who was that, Senor Duenses, Walter, mm-hmm. uh, um, and hook you guys up so maybe you can answer some questions yeah. for him. Well, great, okay. Stephen. Thanks for calling in. You're gonna get a little prize from us. I think that's sorry for that trip up question. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But I did it on purpose. Okay. All right, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye, Stephen. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. I know that was kind of mean. I, I knew that would trick people up because, but, but I did it on purpose because you know every once in a while I got to be you know a little little mean, Walter. Walter's not looking at me. All right, okay. You're never mean to me. I'm gonna <laughs> no. I'm gonna read the diva never. challenge question now. We got a great diva challenge question. Ooh. Ready? Mm-hmm. What Do we week, know it. What weekend is this? What's going on this weekend? Sunday night. Oscars. Jimmy Kimmel, Oscars, right? It's the Oscar weekend. I knew it. <laughs> wow, high five, high five. Oh my God, Walter knew a <laughs> pop culture question. Okay, so it's an Oscar weekend, and here we got an Oscar related question. Here we go. Ready? What great screen legend has won the most Best Actress Oscars? Repeat. What great screen legend has won the most? Best Actress Oscars. See how I did that pausing there, Walter? I didn't slow down. I paused. I, I noticed. Yeah. Okay. So first one to call in with an answer. This is easy. You can Googleize mm, you this in a minute. That. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So um, call in with that answer and win a prize. One is, of my favorite screen legends, too, by the way. Is there any uh, any chance that it will be broken this Sunday night by mm, someone else? No. Mm-mm. No? No, 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 no. It's going to be a long time before this record gets broken. All right. Okay. Um, so what's going on? Uh, oh, we got a, a good thing I'm looking up at the screen. My microphone's in the way today. It keeps falling down. <laughs> it, it, it's blocking my view of the screen mm. with the information coming in. So we got a call on the line. We got Dan on the line. Dan, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Dan. Where are you calling from? From New Hampshire. Hey, Dan from New Hampshire. What's going on in New Hampshire? Anything fun? Well, it's uh, not too much. It's a uh, vacation week, so I was able to call. So. I thought that was great, and I wanted to wish you a happy belated birthday. So. Uh, okay, he's going to get a prize. Get his address, Jen, afterwards. We're going to send him a prize. <laughs> he called in and, and wished me birthday, so good. All right, so, so what are you calling about, Dan? What's up? Well, <clears throat> what I was thinking about, I, universal grammar I find really, really tricky for some reason. And so I was thinking about birds, for instance, have a, have a flying instinct or fish have a swimming instinct. And I was thinking... Uh, on the other hand, you know, Christians celebrate Christmas, but they wouldn't without learning to celebrate Christmas. And I was just wondering if language is somewhere in the middle of those things. So what I mean is um, it seems like we might have the promise of language before we have language, but it can't be fulfilled without <laughs> without learning the language. So I guess my question is, um, is universal grammar in the brain without the presence of language, or does it develop concurrently uh, with the development of language? I, I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear, but... Yeah, you are making yourself clear. And, and the way people in UG talk about it is this, is that, is that language, language grows over time in your head. Okay. And so that means that the, the, the bits and pieces of universal grammar that are relevant make themselves relevant as that language starts to grow. And again, that's the, that, that's the really complex interaction between input and the stuff in your head, right? And so, um, so technically, 
you are born with this capacity to learn language, but that capacity reveals itself over time. It's not like you pop out of the womb and there's Eugene in your head. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you pop out of the womb, and you ha- but you have this instinct for language. And as the input interacts with your brain, the relevant parts of UG start to become apparent. Okay. So, so that that so when we talk about this innate component, we're not saying that that you're born, for example, knowing that there's headedness in language. That you know there's a verb is ahead and a complement follows, um, or that a noun is ahead and then a complement follows a noun. You're not born knowing that there's headedness. But the minute your brain starts to interact with language, the concept of headedness gets instantiated. I know it's kind of a tricky thing to say because it sounds like it sounds like UG is there, but it's not there. But that's kind of what it is. It's there and it's not there. Okay. Um, you've got to get language for UG to be activated. You've got to get exposure to language data. And, th- and that's why they say language is special because um, UG only acts on input data. It can't act on anything else. Um, and so it just it's it's this this capacity that's lying there waiting for some kind of data to trigger it. Okay. I think that's very helpful. I yeah. Think I mean, think about, think about it like this in terms of a seed. A seed is not a flower, right? right. The flower, uh, the se- but the seed contains everything in it that can become a flower. It needs sunlight. It needs it needs soil, it needs nutrients, it needs water, it needs those external things, it needs the input, right? So the seed sort of becomes the flower in a certain sense. And, and, that, and that's the kind of way to think about UG is UG is like a seed that's in your head, and, but it can't do anything until it gets the relevant data that, that can let it, let it turn into a flower, i.e. language. Um, and that's, I think, that one of the best metaphors I can give you right now for that. So I, I understand yeah, I like, you can... I like that seed analogy a lot. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think of language as something that grows and that UG is the seed that, that allows the language to grow, then I think that's probably the best takeaway for that. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Dan. That's a good All question. Right. Thanks. Okay. okay. Thanks Bye for calling, way. Dan. Bye-bye. All Bye, right. Dan. Um, that was a good question. Yeah. We got yeah that some, was a great analogy. I love but it. We also we have some really smart people, listeners. We really do. I, I like our listeners. Yeah, they call and I feel really stupid sometimes. I'm going to say, <laughs> <laughs> I am not touching that line. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Because I get accused of saying so. I get, I'll get taken to the board of whatever it is on campus. Oh, for, my goodness. For harassing Walter. But anyway, so <laughs> do we have any Did we have any quick email questions before we take another phone call? Nothing for me. Walter's going to ask me here. one of those really hard ones. Again. I have a hard one, but so I'm not going to ask it. That's okay, well, <laughs> let, me, let me take the phone call first. Okay, so we have Angie calling. Angie, are you on the line? I'm here. Hello. Hey, Angie, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Vermont. Oh, my God. We just had Dan from New Hampshire. Now his neighbor across <laughs> the state line, Angie's calling. Great, Angie. All right. Our vacation week. <laughs> there you go. So what are you calling about, Angie? What's up? I want to try to answer the Diva Challenge question. Oh, well, we can. Yeah. We can get that. Okay. All right, then. So uh, let me repeat the question for everybody, and then you can answer it. Okay. Oscar weekend, so it's an Oscar question. What great screen legend has won the most Best Actress Oscars? Angie from Vermont, your answer is? Catherine Hepburn. Ding, 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 ding. You are excellent. Okay, and just to edify our our audience out there, do you know how many Oscars, Best (coughs) Oscar Oscars, Catherine won? Um, She has 12 career nominations and four wins. Four wins, exactly. And the next highest number of wins is two for Best Actress right now. 
And there's a number of people who have two. It looks like Meryl Streep has three. No, Meryl Streep has oh, two, two best, best actors and one best supported. Okay. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah. okay. And if you can name the wow. four movies, I'm going to send you Walter <laughs> for a date. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, I can. <laughs> okay. Oh, so what are the four movies? We'll Catherine? send Bill for the date. For, he always likes to offer the, myself for some reason uh, instead of, course, of, instead of himself. <laughs> <laughs> so the four movies are, real quick, before we... Um, Morning Glory from 1932, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, 1967, The Lion in Winter, 1968, and On Golden Pond, 1981, which I think was filmed in New Hampshire. Hmm. Uh, I think it was, actually. Yes, it was. So well, good for you. Well, that's terrific. So, well, thank you for that, Angie. Thank you for, you for, for your all your thoroughness in answering the question. And a <laughs> prize will be winging its way to you soon. Yay. Thank you, BVP. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling Thanks in. For calling, Have a great Angie. vacation this week. <laughs> thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Here. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, see? Catherine Hepburn was awesome. She was awesome. Awesome. All right. Angelica. I'm surprised that the number is so low. It seems like four... Seems like in all the years of the Oscars that there would be someone who's gotten more than that. No, God, you know how hard it is to get yeah. an Oscar? No, it's exactly. that many. Okay, Angelica, do you have a quote for us? I do. It is completely and utterly unrelated to today's topic, but it is a very timely It's, um, it's related quote. to whales. Because <laughs> you, you swim with the sharks. I know what her quote is. I can say that. So go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, Mark Cuban, billionaire software developer and owner of the Dallas Mavericks, um, was recently, actually last week Friday, interviewed um, by Bloomberg's Corey Johnson. And he made a very bold proclamation about the types of skills and majors that will dominate in his version um, a future of the future labor market. And Let's here goes the quote. I personally think there's going to be a greater demand in 10 years for liberal arts majors than there is for programming majors and maybe even engineering because you need a different perspective in order to have a different view. And so having someone who is more of a free thinker, end quote, kind of ends abruptly. But yeah, so he's highlighting English philosophy and foreign language as some of the majors that will do well in the future job market. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. I wish he were president right now, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Mark Cuban. That's great. Yeah. I, I like that. That That's kind of related in the sense that, you know, it's highlighting alternatives mm, to yeah, what's yeah, going yeah, on. That's so, true. We're all about alternatives today. So that kind of related. Well, go, Mark Cuban. Thank you for that. Yes, 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 yes. Um, we want to promote the study of language. We want to promote the study of humanities. All right. Um, are we, uh, I think, are we have a call coming in or do we have an email question coming in? I can't tell what's going on on the board right now. Um, do I have an email I question? I have a Twitter question, actually. Wow. Well, Twitterize me. Go ahead. It's uh, from Donna, and she says, so if UG develops through interaction with language and comprehensible input, does that not say that current online world language classes won't work? Ooh. No, why would it? No. No. no, no Answer no. the question. Because if you're getting input, uh, 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 no matter how you get input, you, you know, if you're comprehending messages via online or face-to-face, you're getting input, and that's going to be triggering things in your head, right? Well, right. I think the, the key there is she's talking about interaction, but there's potentially not – the same level of interaction when you're when you're in an online setting. Well, so. that totally depends on yeah. how that online setting is structured. Exactly. exactly. And the online setting can also control the input too. You can hear it again. You can mm-hmm. pause it at certain points. What did I just hear? You're going to go back. You, you can interact with online input in, in your own way. Uh, it doesn't have to be interaction, face-to-face interaction. Interaction can mean different things as we've said before. So yeah, 
So, all right, we have another call coming in. I'm seeing some initials. It says SK, your number one fan. Mm, who could that be? Not Steven Spielberg, because um, that would be SS. So, <laughs> all right. So, who is this on the line here? It's a mystery guest or mystery phone call. Yes, I'm the mystery caller, Steve Crashin. Oh, <laughs> I thought, okay, yeah. it's Steve Crashin. How are you doing, and Steve? I'm, here, I'm calling from Denver. I'm with Karen Rowan, and we've been drinking coffee and listening to your program. Oh, well, great. That's great. Thanks. A great, a great combination. Well, thanks. Thank um, you. About this ESL special ed thing. Yeah. Oh, boy, what a problem this is, and it has not really been studied. Uh, I have a prediction. And the prediction is if you take an ESL student who is given a lot of good comprehension-based instruction, you know, storytelling methods, TTRS, right. all right. this, and then moves on to become a dedicated reader in English, what we'll see, and by the way, this is hard to do if you're ESL, because a lot of ESL students are also high poverty, where there aren't a lot of books around. Right. What I predict will happen is they won't be long-term ESL. And there'll be far fewer temptations to classify them for special education. I think that's the study that needs to be done, and I think it'd be pretty easy to do on case histories. I I agree with you. I think that's uh, uh, yes. I, in fact, we're going to reach out to. Was that Stephen who called us earlier about that from Maryland? Who brought that up, or was that Dan? No, that was Stephen. Um, we'll reach out to him and tell him if that's something going on that he knows about. We should say if you've got that going on in your school district. There's a project right there to do for your class, um, because I think I think you're right, Steve. I think that that uh, that prediction should and would hold up. Um, and, and as soon as we yeah. get those kind of data, then you can start showing people because it is understudied. Hey, well, for, for no extra charge, I've got two more comments. Sure. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you for your absolutely right on, of course, response to the interaction question. This was the Michael Long comment on the input hypothesis when it first came out. you got to have interaction. you got to... Uh, I think this is a confusion of different levels. At the cognitive level, no, you don't. Right. You can just, you know, listen to the radio and do it. Real-world interaction is a terrific way of making input more comprehensible. Absolutely. No question. But strictly speaking, uh, it actually isn't necessary. Number three, about your joke on getting old. That's really funny. I'm sorry. Nice. And I've got two from Mom's Mabley. Uh, she's, she's always talked about her old boyfriends. Yes. And she says, I had this old boyfriend. And he told me, when I was a little boy, we lived in the country. And her answer was, when you were a little boy, everybody lived in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and also, she said, my boyfriend was so old. He went to a funeral, and the funeral director said, don't even bother going home. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. (laughs) Love your show. Good talk. Thanks, Steve. Say hi to Karen for me. Hi, Karen. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for calling. (laughs) Steve's got a great sense of humor. I love that. Oh, yeah. I have a great old age joke, but I don't know if I should tell it on yeah, the air. Yeah, do it. Well, I, I don't know. Is it appropriate? I think then? it is. I, I think it only has... Can I say boob on the air? Well, you just did, so <laughs> yes. Can I say? It's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's one of Bette Midler, Sophie Tucker jokes. Um, it goes like this. Okay, so you got to remember Sophie Tucker's really old in this, and Mom's Mabley was the same kind of character. Uh, it goes like this. It goes, I will never forget it, you know. I was getting ready for bed one evening, and I caught a glimpse of myself from the full-length mirror. I said to my boyfriend, Ernie, Ernie, look at me. I'm approaching the age of 93. 
My face has more lines than Disneyland. My boobs have gone so far south they're speaking Spanish. And my tuchus, when my tuchus has fallen, it can't get up. Ernie, please say something kind. Give me some words of encouragement. Ernie looked up and down and he said, well, Soph, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's where I am right now. Nothing wrong with my eyesight. Sort of, kind of. Oh, goodness. I'm going to get calls about that. There you go. I have a question. Go go ahead. Um, From... Prof, can't pronounce it, Mudri, maybe? Mm -hmm. I know my students are learning so much through input, but I think they don't think or notice that they are learning because to almost everyone, speaking is the proof that they have learned a language. I've even read teachers say they save speaking pair activities for when the admin comes in to quote-unquote prove their students are learning. Any hints on keeping students positive about the baby steps they are taking in acquisition? Um, you know, I, I just, it's, it's been a while since I've been in a day-to-day language class myself to have to do that. Um, but what I used to do is periodically stop students, you know, like every couple of weeks and just say, let's look at what you can do right now that you didn't know you can do. And I would just get them to do things. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I subbed for Walter's class this last spring in his 101 class, I did that with the students because they weren't sure why are we, you know, what do we care about your family? Because I was doing this whole thing. I said, at the end of this class, you're going to be able to say 10 things about my family. You know, why do we care about your family? And so I took them through it and blah, 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 blah. At the end of 40 minutes, I said, okay, write down 10 things about my family. And they did and they shared with the class. And I said, okay, let me show you now what you've learned. And I just went around the class. I said, say out loud one thing about your family. And that person did. I said, say something different about your family. And I went around the room to like six or seven different people, called on them sporadically, and they were all able to say something Spanish about their family. And I said, mm-hmm. could you have done that before this class started? No. And so I would, I would periodically do things like that to remind my students that, that they're getting a lot. They just, I don't have to make them show it all the time. So anyway. Um, Good deal. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I guess it's time to start wrapping up now. Look, we only have a couple of minutes left. Wow. So thanks for everybody who called in today. That was really nice of people calling, especially Steve and Karen calling from Denver. That was great. Uh, we want to start our thank yous with whom? Who do we always thank first? Daniel. Mm-hmm. Daniel Trago, our technical producer, a great guy doing stuff all the time. Thanks, Daniel, for solving those, those technical issues and calling Steffi Wolf today. We want to thank our media producer, Luca Giappone, our talented and trusted intern, Jennifer Lee, who's handling all the phone calls now, and her right-hand, left-hand muscle man, Dustin DeFelice, who guards the door and makes sure that nobody beats it down and and comes into our studio. (laughs) We want to thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our Dean Christopher Long. Um, Again, go to our Dean's website, and you can find more podcasts and what he's developing there in terms of uh, promoting the College of Arts and Letters. We're very proud of what he's doing and happy to be assisting him in that. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, as I said earlier, we want to thank all of you listeners, and especially the people who called in today. So thank you so much. And uh, thanks especially to Dan, who called and wished me a belated happy birthday. That was nice. (laughs) All right. Uh, Next week, I haven't figured out the topic for next week. I wanted to continue more on some of the stuff we're doing, but it might be a little bit different. So um, pay attention to the newsletter when it comes out on Monday, and you'll know what the topic is. Until then, have a great weekend. We're approaching the end of February. So have a happy second language acquisition time, period. 
end of the month. Don't forget about the birthday card contest. Yes, birthday card contest. Can you do some whale speaking? Goodbye, Bye. everybody. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> That's it. Thanks, That's Angelica. It. That's it. That's it right there. Anytime. Anytime, my friends. Ha, ha, ha.